Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Pagan Magi and Power Politics, The Disclosure of Epiphany. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 6, 2008, Epiphany Sunday, in his recent commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Stanley Hauerwas of Duke observes that sentimentality is one of the greatest enemies of understanding the Gospel, especially the Christmas story and the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. What parent hasn't gushed with pride watching his child play the part of a shepherd in a bathrobe, or an angel with a coat hanger for a halo? I know that I have. The Gospel for this week disabuses us of all such hallmark readings of the Bible. The story of the pagan magi worshiping Jesus ends in carnage when King Herod slaughters innocent children in order to strengthen his rule. This is an old story, retold many times in our own day, in which political powers annihilate their opposition to protect their power. It's certainly not a story that you'd want to teach with a flannel graph in a children's Sunday school. The historical obscurity of the Magi tantalizes our speculation. Many Bibles simply transliterate the word from the Greek New Testament, Magi. Contrary to tradition, Matthew doesn't even say that there were three of them. The Greek historian Herodotus from the 5th century BC says that the Magi were a caste of priests from Persia who could interpret dreams. That's good because there are five dreams in Matthew's birth narrative and four of them warn of the murderous intentions of King Herod and his son Archelaus who succeeded him. Others think that the ancestry of the Magi reaches back to the Kurds two millennia ago. That would certainly be a delicious irony in our own modern geopolitical context. By the third century, some people interpreted the Magi as three kings, a reading which would include a clash of kingdoms. On the one hand, pagan kings who bow down to the newborn king of the Jews, Jesus, and on the other hand, the imperial king of Rome, Herod, who tries to murder him. On January the 6th, Western Christians celebrate the Feast of Epiphany, which takes its name from the Greek word epiphania, meaning disclosure, manifestation, unveiling, or appearance. At the simplest level, on Epiphany, Christians commemorate the appearance of the Magi from the East. But on closer inspection, what are, what are the ramifications of the baby in the manger? What does his birth manifest or unveil? What about the cosmic signs and the provocative language that this helpless baby is a newborn king? Will he really inaugurate a new reign and a new rule in which, according to his mother Mary, God will depose tyrants and send away the rich as empty-handed beggars? 
The Magi who traveled long and hard to worship Jesus with extravagant gifts remind us that he's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of all nations and peoples. In contrast to our propensity to privilege one ethnicity or people over another, to view one's own people as exceptional to God and others as at best unexceptional, and to exclude other people who are different, the pagans from Persia show that God welcomes the worship and the gifts of all people everywhere. This is especially noteworthy in Matthew's Gospel because he wrote for a specifically Jewish community. For example, he incorporates far more Old Testament quotes than the other Gospel writers. He uses the formula that it might be fulfilled at least 14 times. One early tradition even believed, wrongly I might add, that he might have written in Hebrew. So, while Matthew, Matthew focuses on Jesus as King of the Jews in the fulfillment of Israel's history, the Magi are a poignant reminder that Jesus welcomes all people from all places. This was a bitter lesson for early believers, who at first were all Jewish, and who knew that they were the elect of God. The shocking idea that impure Gentiles were, from God's perspective, on equal footing with them. This is Paul's point in this week's epistle from Ephesians chapter 3, 1-12. His ministry, writes Paul, is for the sake of you Gentiles. But for long ages past, this has been what Paul calls a mystery, a word that he uses three times. In Jesus, this mystery has now been revealed, quote, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, verse 6. The Magi then unveil this mystery they disclose the nature of God's kingdom announced in Jesus. They remind us that it can't be limited to the Jews or any other singular people. The Magi symbolize the divine promise given to Abraham for all peoples on earth in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 12.3, and John's vision of heaven with people from every nation, tribe, people, and language in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 7, verse 9. And this is only the beginning. The new King Jesus abolishes not only the barriers of nation, race, and ethnicity. He also transcends the boundaries of gender, religion, economics, and social stratification. For in Christ Jesus, we read in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Magi were only the tip of a very large iceberg. Whereas the Magi of Persia worshipped the baby Jesus, Herod of Rome tried to kill him. We don't normally associate the birth of a baby with the demise of political power, but Matthew does. His political parody is writ large. 
at least we can give credit where it's due. Herod knew a genuine threat to his power when he saw it. Matthew contrasts two rival kings who rule not only over one people, the Jews, but over all the world. One king must give way. The subplot of King Herod almost overshadows the main plot of the adoration of the Magi. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, we read that the Magi came to worship Jesus, and that's what they did. Upon seeing Jesus and Mary, we read in Matthew 2, verse 8, they bowed down and worshipped him, offering him gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Herod tells his confidence that he too wants to worship Jesus, but that's a lie. Matthew says that when Herod heard the news of another king, he responded in fear, paranoia, and eventually infanticide. Herod the Great, as he was known, had been given the title King of the Jews in 40 BC. And after consolidating his power, he ruled over Judea for 33 years. The last thing he wanted was a rival over his Judean domain. So suspicious and insecure was he that he called a secret meeting of religious leaders and extracted information about the exact time and place of the birth of this ostensible new king. This knowledge, of course, would later proved lethal. After worshiping Jesus, the Magi set out to return to their country. But God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, who had demanded that they come back with precise information. They disobeyed Herod and returned home by another route. When he learned that the Magi had tricked him, Herod erupted in a furious rage and murdered all the male children two years old and younger who lived in Bethlehem in its vicinity. Meanwhile, Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus fled to pagan Egypt, where they found asylum. That symbolic place of Israel's bondage now became a place of protection. In the end, it was King Herod the Great who died, about 4 BC, not the baby Jesus. King Jesus returned to settle in the town of Nazareth and in the district of Galilee, although he was careful to avoid Herod's son, Archelaus, who took his place. There are, in fact, five Herods in the New Testament, and to a person they all persecuted Jesus in the early church. In addition to Herod the Great, there's his older son, Archelaus, born of his wife, Malthus, Matthew 2.22. He reigned only a few years and was deposed in 6 AD. Then there's Herod's younger son by Malthus, Herod the Tetrarch, Luke 3.19, who was famous for murdering John the Baptist on a dinner party dare because John denounced his affair with his brother's wife. Mark six fourteen to twenty nine, and for his encounter with Jesus at his trial, Luke twenty three verse seven. Fourth, there's Herod King Agrippa in Acts twelve verse one, 
the grandson of Herod the Great, who murdered James and tried to murder Peter. Acts chapter 12. And finally, there's King Agrippa's son, also named Agrippa, who bantered with Paul amidst great pomp and exclaimed that Paul was trying to convert him. Acts chapter 25, 13 to 26, 32. All these Herods do the opposite of the Magi. They work hard to make the subversive kingdom of Jesus subservient to the political power of the state. But these Herods, whether ancient or modern, are right about one thing. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is decidedly not Lord. And now for further reflection. Who might be our contemporary Magi? Or who might be our contemporary Herods? How do we exclude pagan Magi today because we might consider them impure or unclean? What are the ways that we bow to our modern Herods today? And finally, can you think of how the Magi further disclose the nature of pagan religion and power politics? Pagan Magi and Power Politics for Epiphany Sunday, January 6, 2008. For books this week, I review Mark Knoll, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina Press, 2006, 199 pages. This is the book that every Protestant evangelical who invokes the sole authority of Scripture and who insists upon the simplicity, plain meaning, and clarity of its message should read. I wish a similar monograph had existed when I was in seminary and that my professors had made me read it as a case study in hermeneutics, the study of the interpretation of Scripture. Why, instead of unanimity, was there an interpretive standoff regarding slavery among Protestant believers? What Noel calls an unbridgeable chasm of opinion that tore the nation in two. Why was the evil of slavery eradicated, not by the theological arguments of Christians, but by the military might of armies? Or how can you argue against slavery when both the Old Testament and the New Testament condone it. Mark Knoll, for over 25 years a professor at Wheaton College, and now at Notre Dame, examines a broad diversity of religious viewpoints, mainly American Protestant, but also foreign Protestant, Jewish, and Catholic, both American and foreign Catholics and how they view the theological crisis provoked by slavery. This was a question partly about what the Bible said, how to interpret the Bible, and partly about what was God doing in history, providence. 
Disagreements about what the Bible said about slavery, Knoll demonstrates, were deeply influenced by American assumptions about common sense rationalism, economic individualism, race, gender, and political democracy. Even worse, the far deeper issue of racism was barely broached. People separated the so-called slavery question and the so-called Negro question. For example, no one in their wildest imagination considered the enslavement of whites, even though there were whites enslaved in Old Testament and New Testament times. Even if they thought it was acceptable to enslave blacks. And so even though the war abolished slavery, horrific racism and its evil twin economic disenfranchisement continued unabated. Finally, interpreting the ancient text and applying it to our contemporary context was further complicated by the Protestant insistence that there's no authority above the Bible itself, which was another way of saying that everyone and no one had the ultimate authority to say definitively what the Bible says about slavery. It's a short step from Knoll's theological case study about slavery to virtually every other important issue that Christians face. Women's ordination, homosexuality, abortion, politics, economics, and race. The scriptures, said the Westminster divines, are most necessary for Christian faith and life. And every believer ought to study them often and well. But as Mark Knoll shows in this monograph, earnest appeals to the authority of scripture however necessary and well-intentioned, are the beginning and not the end of the serious work of studying the Bible and then living according to the letter and the spirit of its message. Mark Knoll, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis For film this week, I review a film from 2004, Mongolian Ping Pong, from Mongolia. This film about three boys, Balaik, Dawa, Ergotu, in family life on the endless windswept Mongolian steppe might be the most feel-good, family-friendly, and culturally exotic movie you could watch this year. The stunning scenery alone makes the film worth watching, as does the window onto their fascinating family life. When Balaik finds a ping-pong ball floating in a stream near his tent, it becomes both a mysterious talisman to protect and an exotic treasure to envy. No one can tell him what it is. His parents have no idea, nor do the Buddhist monks. His grandmother says it's a glowing pearl from the river spirits. When their father finally gets a TV signal with his antenna of beer cans and metal saucers, they learn from watching ping pong on television that the artifact is in fact what they call the ball of our nation. What to do? The fate of the ping pong ball and the disruption it causes among the boys, their friends, and family form the plot of this movie. 
It will remind some viewers of the film The Gods Must Be Crazy, about a Coke bottle thrown from a plane that's discovered by Bushmen in the Kalahari Desert, or also the film The Story of the Weeping Camel, which also takes place in the Gobi Desert. This was a wonderful film, and I enjoyed it immensely. Mongolian Ping Pong in Mongolian with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this Epiphany Sunday, we've posted a poem called A Future Not Our Own. It's actually written in memory of Oscar Romero, who lived from 1917 to 1980. Oscar Romero was Archbishop Bishop of San Salvador in El Salvador. He was assassinated on March 24, 1980 while celebrating Mass in a small chapel in a cancer hospital where he lived. He had always been close to his people, preached a prophetic gospel, denouncing the injustice in his country, and supporting the development of popular and mass organizations. He became the voice of the Salvadoran people when all other channels of expression had been crushed by the repression. This prayer was actually composed by Bishop Ken Untener of Saginaw, drafted for a homily by Cardinal John Dearden in November 1979 for a celebration of departed priests. As a reflection of the anniversary of the martyrdom of Bishop Romero, Bishop Utener included it in a reflection entitled The Mystery of the Romero Prayer. The mystery is that the words of the prayer are attributed to Oscar Romero, but they were never actually spoken by him. A future not our own. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest.
We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. A future not our own, in memory of Oscar Romero. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Epiphany Sunday, January the 6th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.